everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm here without my co-host this week. He is in Israel and uh, taking a group over there. It's so nice to be able to go back after a couple of years of delays and um, things being closed down. And so anyway, if you are uh, thinking of them, pray for them. Um, it's just such an amazing opportunity each trip for people to have their faith come alive and um, to see where a lot of the things that we read about in the Bible happen. And so um, as you're thinking of them, pray for them and all the impact and the ministry that's going to happen over there. You know, one of the things that we try to do on this podcast is try to make the Bible come alive. And we talk a lot about how to read the Bible. We do our Bible book overviews. Uh, we talk about certain texts and certain ways of reading. Um, as And our goal is always that you, as you listen, wouldn't just listen to us, but that you would become better Bible readers and more interested in reading the Bible. Because we believe that no matter how much great social commentary you get uh, from podcasts or news or Twitter or wherever you get your commentary, um, no matter how many great books you read, no matter how many great sermons you listen to, uh, real life change happens when you are rooted in God's Word. And it's always easier to read God's Word when you feel like you're getting something out of it. And so a lot of what we spend our time doing is, is trying to equip and inform and encourage you to uh, dive into your Bible each day. And so I wanted to take a moment on this episode and, and talk about a way of reading the Bible that's been very helpful to me and to many other people that I know. And uh, essentially, it's learning to connect your Bible through various stories and lenses and paradigms. So we believe that every word of the Bible is inspired, every word is useful, but there are some passages and there are some themes in the Bible that really help us to see the entire Bible uh, better. So, for example, one of the ways that we do this is we look at the themes that are most important in Scripture. So that would be the glory of God, for example, is a theme that runs through the entire uh, Old and New Testaments, the redemption of God's people, uh, what God is going to do about sin. Once you once you start tracking these themes, you start to realize that the entire Bible ties in in some way or another to these themes. It helps you understand the whole thing. Another metaphor that we've always had for what it means to love and read and learn from the Bible is, you know, in special forces training, I've heard, again, I've been in the special forces, but I've heard that one of the things that they do in certain branches is they'll drop people off at an undisclosed location in little teams and they'll basically give them a target to reach and they have to find their bearings and figure out how to survive and learn and read from the surrounding area what they're going to need to do and then get to that destination. And one of the goals I've always had for people reading the Bible is that they would feel the same way, that if we plop you down in the middle of any passage in the Bible, you can pretty quickly get your bearings, figure out what's going on, where are we in salvation history, what themes are we tying into, what characters should we know, uh, what genre are we looking at. And um, if you can do that, then you can profitably read and get something out of every passage in the Bible. And so something I've noticed lately is a lot of times in the Bible you see commands or statements uh, that have a corresponding or an enlightening narrative somewhere else in the Bible. So, for example, uh, the easy one of the easy ones to see is in uh, Jesus' ministry, he's talking with the scribes who know the Old Testament. And one time they, he, they come up and ask him, you know, what is the most important commandment? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And in response, they say, well, what does it mean to love your neighbor? 
And uh, this lawyer who's asking him this, in, in this specific version I'm reading from is Luke 10. Uh, it says, what does it mean to love your neighbor? And Jesus tells a story called the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in that story, Jesus illustrates what it means to love your neighbor. So it's one thing to just command it, which is a quote from Leviticus 19, verse 18. And it's one thing to imagine it. But now, elsewhere in Scripture, you know, now in the New Testament, we actually get a description of what it looks like or the principles involved in loving your neighbor, defining who your neighbor is, anyone in need, um, crossing boundaries, crossing racial markers. This parable that Jesus tells expands what we, what we think about when we hear the command, love your neighbor. There are a lot of places in the Bible where this happens. I, one of the ones I've been interested in recently is the commissions at the end of the Gospels. So we think about the Great Commission at the end of Matthew, for example. Matthew uh, 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission, go into all the world, making disciples, baptizing, teaching them to obey. That's a command. At the end of Luke, you get a lead into the book of Acts. The, the theme of the book of Acts is in 1.8, you'll be my witnesses across the world to the ends of the earth. Uh, that's the commission there. Mark is a little trickier. Mark is kind of a, a mission by implication. It's kind of a, a commission uh, argument from, from the rest of the book, whereas in Mark you have what's called the Messianic secret. So if you've read Mark recently, you probably realize this. In Mark especially, this happens in the other Gospels as well, but especially in Mark, you get a uh, recurring theme of Jesus telling people not to tell anybody about what he's doing. And this is really odd when you're reading Mark. You're like, I, th I thought the point was to tell people about what Jesus is doing. But again, Jesus says, don't tell anybody. He heals somebody. Don't tell anybody. He teaches. Don't tell anybody. And all through Mark, this this escalates until Jesus is put to death. People start telling people. And then at the very end of the Gospel of Mark, there's this kind of cliffhanger ending. Jesus is risen and everybody's terrified. And there's an implication there that the secret is out. Everybody now knows. You should go and tell everyone what's happened. Um, there's no Messianic secret anymore. There's only the proclamation of what God has done. And so there's a commission in a little bit different way at the end of Mark. Well, John, as you know, John is really different than the Synoptic Gospels. And John, in a lot of ways, is a picture of this theme in the Bible that I'm talking about. There's action and there's teaching. So, for example, there's the multiplication of the fish and the loaves, and he feeds 5,000 people. And then right after that, you get the I am the bread of life discourse. And he explains what it means for him to be the bread of life. And so you have a picture and you have a command put together. And what's interesting is at the end of John, you don't get a commission quite like you get in the other gospels, but you do get a story that functions as a commission. So it's almost like if you took the great commission in Matthew 28 and you took John chapter 21 verses one through 14 and you lay them over each other, they have the same elements. So you have all authority given to from uh, by Jesus over all the earth in the church and among his people, Jesus does the miracle of 153 fish. You have make disciples of all the nation. You have Jesus reminding the disciples they are fishers of men, not fishers of fish. Uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to obey. You have both the restoration of Jesus to the disciples, to Peter especially, tend my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And then you have uh, the prophecy at the end of what will happen to both Peter and John, and that they're going to serve God in different ways, but their deaths are going to glorify him. So in that way, you have a narrative commissioning at the end of the Gospel of John. So <clears throat> one thing to look for as you're reading is where do we have commands or where do we have um, 
statements that are elsewhere illustrated and expanded. And that teaches us to read our Bible holistically. And so uh, the one that I want to focus on today is the prodigal son. The story of the prodigal son is probably the greatest story ever told. I mean, it's just one of those stories that no matter if you believe the Bible or not, everybody knows the story of the prodigal son. And if you think about it, it was just a few sentences that Jesus spoke while he was on earth that have echoed and resonated throughout history. It's one of the most preached sermons in the Bible, uh, preached texts in sermons in the Bible. It's one of the most well-known stories uh, in Western civilization. It's just a phenomenal story. And what I want you to see today is that this story actually does tie the entire Bible together in a couple of ways. So N.T. Wright uh, has a book called Jesus and the Victory of God, and it's part of his Christian Origins series. And in this book, he uses the parable of the prodigal son as a paradigmatic story for Jesus' entire life and ministry. He is the son coming back from the far land. He is true Israel. He is uh, bringing Israel back with him. His ministry exemplifies what's happening in the prodigal son. Israel had sinned. They'd been off away from God. They had forsaken their covenant and, and Jesus brings them back. And as you'll hear later, there's another element to the story where Jesus is the truer and better older brother in this story, bringing his people back to his father. Um, what's interesting is, uh, and, and this isn't often preached with the, pro, with the prodigal son, is that it may be an example of an illustration of a scriptural passage, or it may be that Jesus had this passage in mind when he was telling this story, and it's from Jeremiah 31, which this, Jeremiah 31 starts out with a verse that everybody knows. Uh, Jeremiah 31, 3, it says, I have loved you with an everlasting love, which is just a, a famous passage. And then we get an expansion on that later in verses 18 through 20. I have heard ye from grieving. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. For after I had turned away, I relented, and after I was instructed, I struck my thigh, I was ashamed, and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. And then here's what God says, is he from my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. You can, you can hear the similarities between this description, this prophetic description of Israel and the prodigal son, uh, relenting, going back, returning to his father and, and his father accepting him. So I preached a sermon on this a, a couple of months ago and tried to tie this story in with the rest of the Bible, uh, hoping that it would be used as a lens to read the prophetic text, the history of Israel, some of the New Testament. And uh, regardless of the specific background of this story, I think it's one of those stories that if you can get this framework in your mind, it will help you interpret the rest of the Bible. So I'm including a portion of that sermon today as an illustration of how to read the Bible as a whole. And so I'm hoping this helps the Bible come alive for you. I'm hoping it brings various parts of the Bible together around this theme of the return to God, the repentance, the return to God and a father who is waiting uh, to restore and redeem his people. So this father has two sons. And the younger son, maybe right around the time that he comes of age, maybe he's about 18, he decides, I'm done with this. I don't want to live in your house anymore. I don't want to live by your rules anymore. I don't want to live according to the way this family has been run before. I want my share of the inheritance, and I want to go do what I want to do. In essence, what he's saying to his father is, let's just fast forward in time to where you have already died, and I get what's coming my way. See, to ask your father for an inheritance means, I wish you were dead so that I could have your stuff. 
So what the younger son is essentially saying is, I want the things you have, but I don't want you. So the father is stunned. You know, in this culture, things are a little bit different in this culture. What the father could have done, and if he had asked his friends in town what he should have done, he probably should have had his son beaten. That's what most families would have done at this point. But he decides, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Now, another thing he could have done is be ashamed of himself. How did I raise a son like this? But he decided, I'm not going to ask that question either. One of the Jewish writings from this time on how to live your life as a faithful Jew actually warned fathers against doing the very thing that this father did. In fact, there's a section in this, in this book that talks about you should never give away inheritance before you die because what happens if you need it later? What happens if you have to turn to your son and ask for their help? So this father decides to take the risk. He decides not to react in anger. He decides not to react in shame. He reacts in compassion. He gives his son his share of the family estate. Now, because this is the younger son, he's entitled to one-third of all that the father owns. And in those days, your wealth, in similar ways today, is measured by the land that you own. So what the father would have done is divide up his land into a two-third share and a one-third share and give the one-third share to the son. Now, the son is brazen, about this. We know that because later we see he doesn't set up shop next to the father. He doesn't want to do something in addition to what the father is doing. He liquidates it. He sells the land, sells the property, sells the possessions, takes the money, and leaves. He packs up his stuff like he is never going to come home. He doesn't leave his stuff in his bedroom. He doesn't leave anything with his father. He picks up. He's leaving. He's never coming back. He doesn't want anything to do with his father. The son then goes out to what this parable calls the far country. Okay, this is a familiar story. The, the son goes out to the big city to make it on his own. And he says no to nothing. He decides to live it up in the big city. He's, he's somebody that takes every opportunity that comes his way, and pretty quickly he comes to ruin. This is a familiar story, probably so familiar that you've either lived this or know somebody that's lived this. You go and make your own way, and shortly you lose your way, and then you lose your money, and then you lose control. And all of a sudden, this son finds himself in a position he's unfamiliar with. Actually, this son sinks so low that he does what would have been unforgivable in this culture. He goes and hires himself out to a pig farmer. Now, there's nothing really that specific about the pigs here other than the fact that this would have been a very gross living to make. He is the stable boy at a pig sty, and he is sweeping out and he is caring for these pigs. But the added dimension is this was totally forbidden for Jews. The one animal that you are not supposed to go around, don't eat them, don't cook them, don't raise them, don't buy them, don't sell them, don't touch their hide, don't go anywhere near it, is pigs. That was known throughout the entire ancient world. In fact, archaeologically, you can tell when Jews have been in an area because there are no pig bones. All the other cultures were fine with this, but Jews were forbidden. 
And this guy sinks so low. This is a total renunciation of what his family has stood for, the way he was raised, what he knew was right. He finds himself laying in a pig pen. See, the first part of this story is to convince you that this is not just a cliche story that you can skip past. It is a representation of everybody who's found themselves in a position where you've renounced everything you stood for, where you made deals with yourself and you consistently broke them. You made promises to yourself and to your family, I will never do that. And then you see yourself run right through that limit that you put on your life. And this son wakes up one day and he's hungry and he's out of money and he's out of self-esteem and he's out of goals, he's out of dreams, he's out of dignity to the extent that he says, even my father's servants live better than this. In fact, he's been stealing food from the pigs. This is an all-time low. I wonder if the people standing around Jesus as he's telling this story would have thought to themselves, no one can sink that low. No one could possibly find themselves in a situation that bad. See, if you know this story, you know that this story is in part about forgiveness. As we just read, this son is forgiven in the end, but pause for a moment and think about this. Jesus is telling a story in such a way that this is not easy forgiveness. And in the church, a lot of times we are so obsessed with the sins that are easy to forgive. It's okay if you're sinful as long as they're upwardly mobile kinds of sins. Or it's okay if if you're sinful if these are the sins that are really easy to forgive and forget. But what this story is saying is forgiveness means there has to be sin, real sin. The sin that you kind of want to turn away from and you don't want to talk about. The kind that even when you tell your story, you maybe leave this little part out. For, For forgiveness to be what the Bible says it is, this is the sin that brings alienation, shame, distance, retribution. The ruinous, ugly sins that you find yourself in. And in this series, what we're doing right now is we're talking about five truths to build your life on. And last week, we talked about the Bible being the word of God, God, and this week, your sins are forgiven. And I don't want anybody in here to think that this is a place where sins are forgiven if they're a certain kind of sin. This is a place where the free offer from God to come and fall upon him and plead for the forgiveness of your sins will be honored no matter what your sins are. Because in their culture at that time, there couldn't be anything worse than this guy. And so if you're sitting there and you're thinking, the problem with church people is they're not like me. Or the problem with Christians is they they have two standards, forgivable sins and unforgivable sins. And I found myself in the second category. What Jesus is doing is exploding the category that your sins or my sins are different than anybody else's. So this son hits absolutely rock bottom. But things are not that great back at home either. So the father, back at the ranch, in the meantime, his family hasn't remained unaffected. He's given up a third of his property. Do you know how hard it would be to go from full property and then try to make ends meet, losing a third of it in a day? They're down a third of their estate. They're down a third of their equipment. They've laid off a couple of hired hands. He's got a rocky relationship with his older son, as we're going to see. This guy would not be someone that you would like to do work with. And in the midst of all of that, there's a famine in the land. 
So a famine strikes the land. The father is down on his luck. He's missing his son. He's with his older son, who we're going to find out in a minute, is really not somebody that's great to be around. And on top of all that, his son is missing. His son is missing. And anybody knows that when you have somebody that you know and love that you don't know how they're doing, it can gnaw at you constantly. But we learn something else about the father. He's looking for his son. It's one of those things where they lived out on some land, but when he comes out on the porch in the mornings and the evening, he always casts a glance at the road that leads out of their property just to see, maybe even subconsciously at this point, if maybe today is the day that my son comes home. Maybe today's the day I'm going to see a little head pop up on the horizon and the son I'm missing is going to come back home. It's easy to see the parallels to God in this story. One of the things that Jesus is doing is convincing us that we have a father like the father in this parable. And there's a passage that I came across this week in the book of Jeremiah that makes these parallels so tangible. In fact, some biblical scholars think that this parable is actually what's called a midrash. A midrash is where you take an Old Testament verse and you tell a story about it to make it more clear. And what these Jewish teachers would do a lot of times is they would take a law or they would take a passage in the Old Testament and they would set it to a story so that you could remember what it was like. And I don't know if this is true, but it certainly fits that Jesus might have been explaining this very passage in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 31.3, it says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And he goes on, he says, I've heard the contrition of Ephraim. This is another name for Israel. I've heard the contrition of Ephraim. And here's what he says. You trained me well. You broke me like a wild yearling horse to the saddle. Now put me trained and obedient to use. You are my God. After years of running loose, I have repented. After you trained me to obedience, I was so ashamed of my wild and unruly past Humiliated, I beat my chest. Will I ever live this down? And in Jeremiah 31, verse 20, the Lord replies, O Ephraim, my son, the child in whom I take pleasure, my dear beloved son. Every time I mention his name, my heart bursts for longing. Everything in me cries out for him. Softly and tenderly, I wait for him. This is the heart of God the Father through the entire Bible, waiting and welcoming his children back home. So we see the son is hit rock bottom, but the father is not unaffected. The father is waiting and looking for his son. And one day we find out the son decides he's going to come home. And he's practicing his speech in the pigsty. All right, he's, And everybody's been here before. You're trying to make sure that you get everything just right so that maybe you're not attacked or maybe you preempt a couple of the accusations that are coming. This son has low expectations for how this conversation is going to go. He says, I don't even want to be your son anymore. I just want to be a hired hand. So this is interesting. The son has a couple of options. He can come back as a son. He can come back and pretend like nothing happened, and he's decided there's no way that's going to happen. He could come back as a servant. Servants lived on the land. They worked for the father. They were indentured to him. And then there was a third category of hired hands. Hired hands don't get to live in the bunkhouse they don't get to live on the property. They live in town, and they get to come out every day and work 
for a wage. And that's what the son proposes to tell his dad that he wants to do. See, what the son is trying to do is he's trying to begin the long, slow process of paying his dad back. What he decides is going to be the most just thing is if he could find, over the course of his life, some way to make up for what he's done to his dad. So he comes home, and his dad is watching for him. It says before he even is getting close, his dad looks, and far away on the horizon, his dad sees him. And when his dad sees him, look at what the text says. He arose and came to his father, but while he was a long way off, his father saw him, and his father felt compassion. His father felt compassion. This is a really interesting word in the text. So this this word we translate as compassion, or sometimes it says he was moved. This word, I want to tell you what it is just because it has such a great verbal effect. This word is splagna, and what it means is guts. It means he felt it down deep in his stomach, in his bowels. It says his first reaction was to be emotionally moved at seeing his son coming back. He was, the British actually have a great way of saying this, he was gutted when he saw his son. And he does something that no man who owned land would ever have done in this time period. Because, see, one of the things is, when you are a landowner, you wore a big, long robe, a big, heavy robe. And you know what happens when you begin to run in a robe like that? You might trip, and that would be very undignified. But actually, what would be worse in Israel is somebody might see your legs. You would never want that to happen. That was totally undignified for a man at this time. You wouldn't want anybody to see your feet or your legs. But what this father does, he is so moved by his son coming home that he gathers up his robe and he takes off running down the street to meet his son. And his son gets near and he's like, all right, speech time. He gets ready to spit out this speech. And the text says his father is so excited to see him that he falls upon him. It literally says he falls onto his neck and begins to kiss him. His father jumps on a man who just hours before this had been in a pigsty. And he kisses him, and he hugs him, and he has compassion on him. He's welcomed by his dad. And his son begins to give the speech. I'm not worthy to be called your son. I've got a plan. I want to make restitution. And the father immediately says to the servants, Get him a robe, get him a ring, get him sandals on his feet. He came home, he didn't even have shoes on his feet. Kill the fattened calf, and we're going to celebrate with a feast. Why? Because this son of mine was dead, and now he's alive. See, the son had wished the father was dead, but now the father is glad that the son who was dead has now come back to life. He was ruined, the text says. He was destroyed, but now he's been found. And they began rejoicing. This story is about a prodigal father. So we use the word prodigal now to describe this story in a way that has kind of flipped the meaning of this parable. The word prodigal doesn't mean somebody who was lost who came back. That's how we use it now because it's a prodigal son. The word prodigal means somebody who is lavishly or extravagantly wasteful. Somebody who spends everything they have on a cause that may not have exercised the best judgment. This story is about a father 
who so lavishes what he has on his son that it might be considered wasteful. What happened was when, when he told the servants to go and kill the fatted calf, this is not just like having a steak dinner at your house. Okay, This is not just like what you'd have for an anniversary meal. When you kill the fatted calf, there is so much food that you've got to invite the entire town to come eat it. This is a signal. This is like something you would do for a wedding for your child. This is a signal from the father to the rest of everyone he knows that this is the best day of his life. He's killing a fatted calf. He's inviting everybody. He is lavishly, prodigally spending what he has to welcome his son home. And the message is anybody can come home. At this point in the story, what everybody listening would have thought is, if that guy can come home, anybody can come home. This is a giant welcome sign to everyone. If you are in the pigsty, come. If you've screwed up your life, come. If you've wasted your potential, come. If you've let everybody in your life down, come. And not just come and sneak in the back door. Come and you will be welcomed by a prodigal father. A father who loves you so much that he considers you coming home the best day of his life. This would have really irked people. You know, this this passage starts, if you look back at the beginning of chapter 15, there's three parables in a row. And at the beginning, there's a little introduction. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled. They grumbled. That's what they're doing through most of the Gospels. They grumble. And they're saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And Jesus says, you don't even know the half of it. So he tells these parables about finding things that are lost. And this is where the story starts to get really good. There's two sons in this story. So you've heard about the first one. Let me tell you about the second one. So when the younger brother leaves, the older brother stays. And when the younger brother disobeys, the older brother obeys. When the youngest brother wastes his father's money, the older brother is actually making money on his father's money. He's working for his father to increase what they have. And when the younger son breaks the relationship, the older son stays in the relationship. When the younger son comes back in shame, the older brother's been there all along. He's never done anything to to bring shame on the family like the younger brother has. So the older son is out in the field doing what he's supposed to do, and he hears all this commotion And you have to think that he wonders if it's a party for him. He comes back, and he asks one of the servants, what's going on in there? And the servant says, your brother's come home. And it says immediately the older son was angry. And not just angry, so angry that he refuses to go in. So much so that actually it's his turn to shame his father. So the younger son shames the father by saying, I wish you were dead, and I don't want to be a part of this family anymore. The older son shames the father by, on the best day of the father's life, making the father come outside and argue with him in front of all his friends. You've never done anything for me. I've kept all the rules. These many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed you. You never gave me a young goat that I could celebrate with my friends. But with this son of yours, not my brother... When this son of yours comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. See, this son son is breaking the relationship with the father in a different way. 
The moral of this story is not the younger son broke the relationship and the, and the older son didn't. The older son sinned in a different way. He thought that he could get his father's stuff by being good. Because what you realize is the older brother doesn't want a relationship with the father either. He just wants his stuff. He just took a different route to get there. The younger son demanded it and rebelled. The older son was biding his time so that he could have it in the end. But what's apparent in this dialogue is he doesn't love his father. He doesn't love his brother. He is bitter because he wants the stuff. And he thinks that keeping the rules was a good way to wait until his time comes. You know, the Bible is full of stories about two sons. Think about this for a moment. From the very beginning, even from Adam and Eve, two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain slays Abel. Then you have Cain and Seth. Cain goes off and founds his own city. Seth is the line of the children of God. Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac is the promised son. Ishmael, though being the first son, is not the son of promise. Jacob and Esau, twins who are at strife with each other. In a broader sense, Israel and the Gentiles are both talked about as brothers who don't get along. I was watching an interview a couple of weeks ago with George Lucas, the person who wrote and and produced Star Wars. And I thought this comment was so interesting. Somebody asked him, where did you get the idea for Star Wars? Had you been studying space and sci-fi and all this? And George Lucas said something that kind of caught me off guard. He said, my goal was to tell a story about fathers and sons. And I just so happened to tell it through the medium that I loved, which was sci-fi. But he's like, the heart of that story, though, is what happens when fathers and sons and brothers and sisters are estranged from each other. This is one of the oldest stories in the history of the world. What happens when fathers and sons and daughters and brothers and sisters are estranged from each other? And this is the cosmic story of the Jews. The Jews were supposed to be like an older brother to the world. Remember the promise of Abraham? Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The Jews were supposed to be a light to the nations. They were supposed to be an older brother who brought the other brothers into the worship of God. If you go through the Old Testament, that's what you see on every page of prophecy is someday the Gentiles will come to worship God. Someday Israel will repent and they will be the stewards of the wonders of God that they were designed to be. Luke has been telling us a story about brothers, but sometimes it's hard to see. In chapter 3, Jesus is baptized. And at Jesus' baptism, God shouts from the heavens, This is my beloved Son. Actually, in Luke, it's in the second person. You are my beloved Son, and I'm proud of you. That's what God says. You are my beloved, only begotten Son. And I am proud of you. And then immediately after that, Luke does something very interesting. He goes into a genealogy, right? Which is not everybody's favorite portion of Scripture. But you've got to ask yourself, why does he turn to go through a genealogy right after God has declared that Jesus is his beloved son? And so it says, you know, Jesus was supposedly, according to the flesh, the son of Joseph. And Joseph was the son of Eli, and all the way back up, and it says, and Seth was the son of Adam, who was the son of God. Adam, the son of God. 
Now, when I say that God has these two sons, I'm not saying that they're equal sons. Of course, we know from John 3.16 that God sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is not the same as human sons in the sense that he's not created. He is preexistently eternal. He's with the Father forever, but he comes to earth as a son. And Luke is telling us, and as the older brother, there is another son, the race of Adam. Everybody, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, through whom death entered the world. Every person who's rebelled against God is a younger brother. But there is an older brother in this story. And what Jesus is doing, this is the final aspect of this story, is it doesn't end quite like the other stories do. Have you noticed that? In Luke 15, the first story is one about a hundred sheep. And one sheep goes missing, And the shepherd, the good shepherd, goes and looks for the sheep. He seeks after the sheep, and when he finds it, it says, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. Second story. There's a woman who has 10 silver coins, and one coin goes missing. So what does she do? She invites people over, turns over the house looking for that coin. Just so, I tell you in verse 10, there is joy before the angels of God when one sinner repents. Then you get to the prodigal son. So some people call it the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. And think about the difference in these stories. In the first one, something goes missing, somebody goes looking, and people rejoice when it's found. In the prodigal son story, something goes missing, nobody goes looking, and at the end, The father and the son are rejoicing, but the older son is not rejoicing when the son is found. There's a dissonance in these stories that should make you ask a question. Who's going to look and who's going to rejoice? The dissonance in these stories is a poke right in the eye of the Pharisees who have not been looking and they have not been rejoicing. And what Jesus is telling them is this story is actually going to end differently when it's retold in my life. Jesus is the older brother in this story. And in the first story, when the sheep goes missing, the good shepherd goes and finds him. In the second story, when the coin goes missing, the woman goes and looks for the coin. And Jesus is basically saying by his life, when the son goes missing, Jesus goes and looks. His message all through Luke and the gospels is, I came to seek and save the lost. Jesus goes and looks for the younger brother. The younger brother is missing, and Jesus, instead of being like the older brother who stays and self-righteously waits out his father, decides to go down the same road. And he goes, and he finds his brother. And when he finds him, the situation is so dire, and he is in such terrible need that he is never going to be able to be free again. His debts are so high, they will never be repaid. He is a slave condemned to death. He offers a price that can be acceptable, and there's only one thing he can do to get his brother back. He must forfeit his life for his brother. And that's a trade that Jesus is willing to make. He goes and he finds his brother in the far country, and he sacrifices his own life so his little brother can come back to be with his father. This is the story of all stories. It's your story. It's my story. It's a retelling of this story, which is our older brother has come to find us. And not just that, he's willing to give his life so that you can be forgiven 
and welcome back into the family of God. See, the way the story ends in eternity is exactly the way the story of the lost sheep ends. He goes, he finds him, and there is rejoicing in heaven when a sinner comes home. Forgiveness is not free. Forgiveness is not just looking over something. Forgiveness is not just God doesn't really care about your sin anymore. Forgiveness is your older brother came and died so that you could come in and rejoice with the Father. So when we say your sins are forgiven, we're not saying that the sin didn't get paid for. We're just saying it didn't get paid for by you. In fact, that's the gospel, that every sin in the history of the universe will be paid for, either by you or by Christ. Those are the two options. Sin will be paid for either by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross or by eternity apart from God. And So the offer at the end of this parable is, do you want to be part of the family? Do you want to be welcomed in? Do you want to be celebrated? Do you want to be part of the family? There is rejoicing in heaven when sins are forgiven. The last thing we learn is that forgiveness doesn't lead to a transaction. God's forgiven your sins, now go and make sure you never do anything bad again. There is, if you really understand what Jesus has done for you, you know that your life is now going to conform to his life. That the Holy Spirit that comes inside of you is going to keep you from sin. But actually, one of the final points of this story is that forgiveness is the refashioning of a relationship. That when you are forgiven, you have been welcomed back into God's own family. Your life has been transformed. You're not like the other brother because you love the things that God loves. You're not like the younger brother because you choose the thing that God chooses. You love to be in his Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.